Hey everyone, this is Chad Arms, pastor of Creekside Bible Church. Thanks for taking some time to listen to my latest sermon, a sermon about the forgotten letters of the New Testament. It will play in just a minute, but before it does, I want to extend to you a huge and heartfelt thank you. Our sermons podcast, this podcast right here, had over 11,000 listens last year. That is a huge number for a church our size, and it blesses my heart to think of all of the lives that were touched through our audio recordings going out. This is only possible because you faithfully listen and because you leave us ratings and reviews and share this podcast with other people. And so thank you, thank you, thank you. We'll do our best in the next year to keep putting out great sermons. And I hope that this one right here will help you to learn and live more fully for the glory of God. So I said this last week, uh, but it bears repeating, and that's we live in a culture that is, is shifting, right? And I just think back, I'm 35 years old, and in the early days of my life, it was like seen as cool to be a pastor. You could hear as my dad talked about his pastors this morning, just there was a respect, there was there was you looked up to them you thought the best of them and 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 you know some 30 years later from the time I was a kid uh, just in my own role it's like there's a natural disrespect and distrust of pastors and in our state there is a we don't like authority very much in any way. And so when a guy stands on a stage, it's like, well, who's he to tell me what to do? Uh, hopefully you weren't thinking that, but maybe you were. Um, and, and it's not only in my role, but just in culture in general, we've seen this movement away from, from a Judeo-Christian value system. And we've seen a movement away from, from really uh, just a kind of an acceptance of Christian teachings into a natural tendency for most of Americans, I think, to kind of to kind of push away Christian teachings and to avoid Christian teachings. And even if they don't know, if, if you don't know Christian teachings, then maybe you already just have like a, a negative idea of, of what Christians teach. And that's a cultural shift. It's just the way that it is. Uh, and out of that, and maybe one of the reasons for that, is that within the church, what we've seen is, is really a, a tearing down of some of the core tenets and core truths and core values that, that forever, like since Jesus walked the earth, uh, and even before that, if you go back into Judaism, have been just accepted by Christians. This is the way it is. This is what we believe. This is what the Bible says. And much of that has eroded in kind of our postmodern culture that we now live, where you see the culture around us moving away from Judeo-Christian values. But interestingly, you see within the Christian culture a movement away from what we've always considered Judeo-Christian values or Judeo-Christian teachings or, after Jesus, just Christian teachings. And I think at our church that, that almost all of us are, 
uh, fairly conservative theologically. That doesn't mean politically. We are very uh, wide in our political spectrum here. But, but theologically, the majority of people, you wouldn't be in this church if you didn't hold to some conservative, uh, what some people would call old-fashioned Christian doctrines and beliefs. We see the culture shifting in Christianity, but you're in part at this church because because you hold to certain truths that have been taught in Christian circles for a couple thousand years. And this morning's sermon is, is for those of you that, that that's true of. You look at the Bible, you say, I think the Bible is true. I hold to the Bible in a way that I think is consistent with the way that my grandma would have held to the Bible. Uh, and and uh, I'm a little worried about... The erosion of those truths in other types of Christianity, other flavors of Christianity. Now, I know as I say that, you're like, if you're, if you're somebody who doesn't fall into that category, uh, then immediately you might want to shut me off. But let me tell you why you should listen. You should listen because we're, I'm just peeling back the curtain here and saying, this is a difficult thing for those of us that have held to the truths of the Bible, at least the way that the Bible has been seen for hundreds and thousands of years. It's difficult because we don't want to look like jerks that are running around saying, you're all wrong, you're all wrong, do it our way. But at the same time, we need to kind of, we do, we, just, we need to hold to truth. And, and there's this tension for, for us who are conservative theological Christians that is really difficult to navigate because we don't want to be seen as judgmental, morality, theology police that run around saying everybody's wrong. We don't want to be looked at as the people who are trying to shove our specific, particular way of thinking about the Bible down everybody else's throats. But we believe certain things. And so we have to hold to those things or we would be hypocritical, another, another criticism of Christians in modern day America. We have to stand firm in these beliefs because we believe them. And so the question for us is what do we do? And if you don't fall into that category, I just want you through the sermon to go, this is my hope for you. Yeah, that's kind of a difficult place for them to be in. Like, what would I do if I really, really, really believed something, but everybody around me was now saying, well, it's stupid to believe that. And what's so fascinating about that conundrum, that situation, that tension, is that in some ways it's exactly the situation that the book of Jude is written into. Uh, who knew there was a Jude in the Bible? Good, that's most of you. I wanted to. I'm not going to do this because I would have embarrassed a few of you and sold you out as liars. But I wanted to say, who knew that book was about Judas that betrayed Jesus and how he, he, he recovered from that incident? And I guarantee we would have had like 60% of you like, oh, I think I heard that once before, right? Judas, this very little known book, it's one of the forgotten letters, the two forgotten letters that we're looking at over this kind of two-week mini-series. It's shoved in the back of the Bible. It's a book that we'll see in just a second is not very positive in its 
overall feel. It's not something that has a bunch of likable quotes. In fact, Jude has the audacity to quote people outside of the Bible, which really rubs some theologians wrong. Like, how could he quote somebody that didn't even believe like we believe? And people get really hung up on that. That's probably what I studied most when I studied Jude in school. Like, well, why did he quote those things? That's really what I knew about the book. But Jude is written into a church culture where, where people are people that call themselves Christians are tearing at the very fabric of, of Christianity. And not just the fabric of it theologically, but morally. And that's what we so often feel in our culture today. And, and so we're going to look at what God inspires Jude to write in response to this issue. In Jude 1.1, we read this, Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and a brother of James. Uh, the long and short of this is that Jude is, is probably one of Jesus' brothers. And I think that's really important for, honestly, one reason, and that is nobody has a tendency to build their brother up unless it's absolutely true, right? Like, I have brother-in-laws, and we just like to say bad things about each other, even though we really love each other. Um, and, and there's this natural tendency amongst males, but especially amongst brothers, to say the, the least nice thing you can say and still be nice about your brother. But Jude, so fascinating, does, isn't it? Like if you were the brother of Jesus, you'd probably buy a t-shirt. Hey, brother of Jesus, what's up? But Jude doesn't even introduce himself that way. He says, Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ. What a crazy thing to say about your brother, right? It's to me evidence that Jude believes strongly that Jesus really is the Messiah. He is the Savior. He is the one who came from heaven to earth to, to live sinlessly and then die the most horrific, brutal death that the world has ever known because it was spiritually awful. He died on a cross and he rose again three days later so that humanity could have forgiveness of sin. And that humanity includes Jude. And he wouldn't say it. He didn't even believe that Jesus was the Messiah when Jesus walked the earth. Jesus' brothers thought Jesus was crazy when he walked the earth. What changed? Well, the resurrection. The resurrection, and we try to make a big deal out of the resurrection at this church, is what changed human history. But it also changed the hearts of a lot of people, including Jesus' brothers, Jude and James, most famously. James is another book in the Bible. They were not believers. I mean, they could see that the world was flocking to Jesus, that the world was following Jesus, that Jesus was doing miracles. And I'm like, nah, we grew up with the guy, you know. I mean, this can't be real. And then they saw him die, and they saw him come back to life, and they gave their lives to their brother. That's crazy. We so often, and, and if you're in that second category, people who don't believe this stuff, not a conservative Christian, not a Christian at all, then, then, then you have a tendency, you do, to just ignore the change that the resurrection caused in the world. Taking this little band of people who wandered around the Middle East and, and turning it into the, the largest religion in the world, the most influential religion in the world, and I just would stop and pause and say, don't ignore it. I don't know if you'll come to believe it. That's not up to me. But at least consider 
this idea that, that when Jesus died, Christianity should have died. But it didn't because, because what people like Jude and James and the, the disciples tell us, he got out of the grave. So Jude introduces himself and then he continues in, in the rest of verse 1 and verse 2. To those who have been called, who are loved in God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ, mercy, peace, and love be yours in abundance. And just before we look at the solution to our problem, to the tension that we feel when, when the morality of Christianity is eroding around us, it's important to remember who we are in Jesus I preached a whole series about how Paul talks about our identity. Identity theft is what we called it in the book of Ephesians. But here Jude, before he gets into the heavy stuff, the weighty stuff, he pauses and says, look, I'm a servant of Jesus. You're a servant of Jesus talking to this church. Let's remember what that means. It means that we're called and we're loved and we're kept and that we've experienced mercy and peace and we have love and we hopefully have love in abundance. It's really hard to do what Jude says in the rest of this book if we don't remember exactly who we are in Jesus. If we're looking for our love, if we're looking for our belonging, if we're looking for mercy and our peace in other things besides our relationship to Jesus, then it's going to be really, really difficult for us to do what James calls us to do in this passage of Scripture. And I'll just encourage this. If you're struggling to figure out everything that's going on in the world and in Christianity and you just find yourself angry and frustrated and depressed over what you see in the news, over what you hear about at work, all of these things that are going on around us in the world, but right here at home too. If all of that is creating negative emotion in you and you're just struggling because of it, Perhaps you've forgotten exactly who you are in Jesus and what you have because of Jesus. Because one of the things that's so clear in Scripture is that no matter what happens around us, when we find our true identity in Jesus, no matter how mean people are to us, no matter how bad our finances are, no matter how our families seem to be crumbling, when we find our identity and all of the stuff that we need for joy and happiness in Jesus, then nothing that happens in this world can take it from us. Everybody can leave us to our own little conservative Christianity and we still can be fulfilled and joyful and have hope and have the peace that every human wants. And so if you're bogged down by what's happening around you, come back to verses like Jude 1, 1 and 2, passages like Jude 1, 1 and 2, and remember exactly who you are and what you have because of what Jesus has done for you, that death and resurrection that I've already talked about. And then in verse 3, he says this, Dear friends, although I was very eager to write to you about the salvation we share, I felt compelled to write and urge you to... This is the phrase I want you to notice. This is the biggest phrase of the whole day. I urge, or, and urge you to, ready, contend for the faith that was once for all entrusted to God's holy people. This is so interesting to me because it's a weird thing to say when you're inspired by the Holy Spirit to write something down. He says, I'll tell you what I wanted to write about. I, I wanted to write about the good stuff of the Christian faith. 
I wanted to write you a letter and talk about how Jesus gave his life for you. I wanted to write you a letter and talk about how cool the resurrection is. I wanted to write you a letter and talk about how great it is to have forgiveness of sin. I wanted to write you a letter and talk about our hope that we have now and we can look forward to heaven and how Jesus changed everything for us and makes really everything better. And I, I don't mean that that makes your problems go away, but it makes dealing with problems better. I, I wanted to write you a letter about that. But I couldn't because I see the situation in your church. And so instead, I'm going to write you this letter and urge you to contend for the faith that was once for all entrusted to God's holy people. Sometimes we embrace this idea that Christianity is just unicorns and butterflies and puppies. Like there's, there's nothing difficult about it. Once you become a Christian, life is perfect. You don't have to deal with things anymore. I think that most people want Christianity to be really, really, really easy. And Jude says, I want to talk to you about the easy stuff, but I need to talk to you about something difficult. And we know that that difficult thing is false teachers. And I'll tell you, don't, don't believe, don't believe, because this is one of the false teachings that I see around us, actually, that being a Christian allows for us to just think about the good stuff, the easy stuff, the fun stuff, and to never have to think about the hard things. We live in a world that is difficult. And as Christians, we should lead into finding out how to deal with that more than anybody else because we have solutions. We have real solutions. But a lot of times we want to stick our head in the sand and say, oh, it's okay, it's okay, it's okay. And Jude says, yeah, it's not all okay. What I see in your church is not all okay. And so I need to write to you about contending for the faith. And that's the phrase we need to pay attention to. It's the key phrase. It's the most important phrase for us today. Jude calls them to contend for the faith in the middle of these false teachers that we'll talk about in a second. But uh, first, this word, contend. It's a strong word. It's only used here in the New Testament. If you're into that kind of thing, Jude does that a bunch. He uses words that are only used in the New Testament in his book. Uh, seems to have a very big vocabulary. And, and, and what's so fascinating about this word is that it's a word that, that can refer to the exertion of an athlete. An athlete working hard, fighting to get the victory. It's similar to the word, and this is more famous in 1 Corinthians 9.25. Five that Paul uses, everyone who competes, similar word, in the game goes into strict training. They do it to get a crown that will not last, but we do it to get a crown that will last forever. This competes word is a word that Paul uses pretty consistently. He uses it for the energetic defense of the gospel by his co-workers. And what our word contend really means is to, cont to continue the struggle or to carry on the fight. That's a fascinating word because it doesn't just mean, and this is what I think that we do as conservative Christians today, we say, well, it just means don't give in to false teachings. Don't believe them, avoid them. But it's bigger than that. He's saying it's our job to fight for the faith that we have been entrusted, entrusted with. And that's an interesting idea. Have you ever considered that you have been entrusted with this faith if you've become a Christian? 
You've been entrusted with carrying on the truths of Christianity if you are a Christian person. This word means handed over. It's been handed over to us. And, and it's used for like a torch in a, a, a torch race or a, a son to the tutor. Like, hey, I entrust my child to you to learn. Or a purchase to a buyer. Like this is, this is here, it's yours now. And God has, this is scary. God's looked at you if you're a Christian, right? And said, I entrust the truth of this to you, to you. Now, one of the problems that I see with us in this is that we're a Protestant church. For all intents and purposes, that means we're not Catholic. And, and when the Reformation took place and the church split between Catholics and Protestants, I'm simplifying church history about as uh, far down as I can simplify church history, but when that split took place, something happened. And it happened over time. And that's that Catholics seem to want to get more Catholic, and Protestants seem to want to get more Protestant, because we didn't want to be anything like them, right? Like, whoa, that sounds like you're being Catholic, you know, or that, well, you sound like a Protestant, you know, like it's a dirty word. And out of that, what I see as, as a problem in our current Protestant culture today is that we have not cared at all about the tradition of the faith. And so, Catholics say like this, ready? I'm simplifying this too, but they say, here's the Bible and here's tradition. They are equal. We believe them the same. If the church taught it at some point or the Bible taught it, they are equal. Good example of this. Catholic tradition says Jesus didn't have brothers. And so uh, even though it appears in scripture that Jesus had brothers like Jude, uh, Jesus didn't have brothers. He had cousins because tradition says that. What happened out of that is Protestants came along and Protestants says, we don't care about tradition at all. And so we've been willing for 500 plus years to say, eh, who cares about the tradition? And what we've seen as a byproduct of that is we now have every person just totally interpreting the Bible for themselves, which has its benefits, but also has its drawbacks. Because let me tell you, if you get really far away from tradition, what people have been teaching for hundreds and hundreds of years, you're probably wrong. And we've seen it more and more lately, especially in regards to morality. Well, sure, they taught that 50 years ago. And, and sure, they said the Bible meant that 100 years ago. And sure, they said the Bible meant that 1,000 years ago. And sure, it seems that 100 years after Jesus walked the earth, they thought that the Bible meant that. But I don't read it that way. That's dangerous, right? That's dangerous. And, and so, I, I, just to illustrate, um, so, have you ever seen like a four by 100, like the race, right? Like in track and they run and, and when they hand the baton off, I didn't have a real one. You'll have to forgive me and pretend it's a piece of paper. Um, if you've ever seen the, the, the four by 100, uh, the way it works is that they, they sprint and then the, the next guy that's about to get the baton, they just stick their hand out and start running, right? And you can't lose any time, so it's like a whole sprint deal. And, and in some ways, that's how we act as Protestants. And a lot of times, and more and more it seems, we're just dropping the baton. It's just dropping, and we're missing the point. But I had the privilege to watch Gigi over there run in a 4x400, and Luke too, did you run the 4x400? 
four by 100. So I saw the bad example with Luke. Uh, but the four by 400, which I didn't know this. It was super fun, uh, which I never would have said about a track meet before this. But it ends with the four by 400, like every track meet ends with the four by 400. And when I saw them warming up and practicing their, their handoffs, I'm, I think I whispered to maybe their mom over there, they're doing it wrong. You're supposed to start sprinting because all I'd ever watched in the Olympics was the 4x100 because ain't nobody got time to watch the whole 4x400. But what is different in the 4x400 is that while the baton is being passed, they actually turn and they like make eye contact. This is probably a terrible way of illustrating this. But they, they secure this handoff with a jog. They're looking, they're making sure that it's secure, and then they turn around and run. And I think it's the perfect illustration for how we've been entrusted with the faith. We're not called to start sprinting on our own and say, eh, I'm not going to be Catholic-like. I'll come up with new ideas and new ways to read this scripture and I'll throw out any morality that I feel like throwing out because whatever I feel about it makes it true. I think we need to, to hold on to the truths of Christianity much more like the 4 by 400 We need to look back. We need to say, well, what did they say? Okay, well, let me grab that baton and move on. And that's what he's saying here. You're the next leg. As a human Christian that lives in the 21st century, you're the next leg of the race. And you need to hold on to the faith that God has entrusted to his people, God's holy people, for, uh, for thousands of years, really. And he's going to explain at the end of this book how we are to do that. And it's not what you think because we so, we're so quick, I think, to say like, well, that means yell at the people that are wrong or just be mad about it. But Jude gives us a very clear way of holding on to the faith, of being entrusted to the faith. But before, before we get there, verses 20 and 23, I want to I look at, at what's up with these false teachers in this church because... They're teaching things that are very similar to what we're hearing all around us today. And so I'm just going to read these and then uh, just try to just put them in our modern kind of ideas. Uh, verse 1-4, there's only one chapter, but for the purpose of understanding where we are. Verse 4, they're ungodly people who pervert the grace of God into a license for immorality. When I was a kid, let me tell you what this looked like. If this ever crept into the church, it would look like this. This doctrine of once saved, always saved, which many people in this church believe. The idea is that once you become a Christian, you will always be a Christian. That will never go away. And that's fine belief. You can support that scripturally. That's just fine. But what that became in certain circles that I grew up in was a license to do whatever you want. I went to VBS when I was a kid. I accepted Jesus as my Savior that means I'm saved. And so I'll do whatever I want for the rest of my life because I'm going to go to heaven. Now, I don't see nearly as much anymore. Um, I don't know why. I wish I knew why, but I don't see that. What I see now in this, this license of uh, immorality because we look at the grace of God is seen in this phrase that we harp on all the time at this church, and that's this phrase. God just wants me to be happy. God just wants me to be happy. Here's the, here's the line of thinking. This is what false teachers all over our great country will tell you. God loves you. That's clear. We all agree on that. In fact, God loves you so much that he sent Jesus to die for your sins. 
And that produces incredible positive benefits for you. You get joy, you get peace, you get all these things. You get to go to heaven someday. We're all in agreement, right? I mean, we all agree with this. It's good, right? It's just good. Here's the so. So, that just means that God wants you to be happy. And so do whatever you want that makes you happy. It's really, it's dumb. It's so dumb. And Jude has a real problem with it because he's calling these guys out. And by the way, I'm not even going to read these parts, but he's basically just putting them in the context of their demise and their punishment at the hands of God, people that are teaching these types of things. But it's dumb because it's like, to me, it's like looking at a guy who's smoking a cigarette and saying, eh, just keep smoking if it makes you happy. Like, you're a jerk, right? I mean, like, that, nobody should ever tell somebody to keep smoking. I mean, like, if your 12-year-old son wanted to start smoking because it made him happy, would that be, like, cool with you? Like, hey, here's a cigarette, son. I mean, I know all your friends are doing it. It seems like it's going to make you happy to fit in. That's literally just stupid i'm sorry if you think that way but you're probably not stupid but it's it's stupid thinking and yet this is permeating the christian culture today it's all over the place i hear it all the time god just wants me to be happy doesn't god just want us to be happy doesn't god just want my happiness no god wants your faithfulness and your obedience and ultimately god wants your joy but you're not going to find it by doing whatever you want that makes you happy in the moment here i'll ask you just to raise your hands who's done something that you thought was going to make you happy and ultimately it didn't Go ahead, put them up. We've all done it, right? I mean, we do it from the time we're little kids. Hey, I could jump off that. It's going to be awesome. Broken arm. You know what I mean? Like, that's no good. And Jude looks at this. We can align with this, right? And all they're saying is, hey, God's grace, he's gracious to you. It means you can do whatever you want. It means you can do whatever you want. But how are people even buying into this? Well, we find the answer in verse 8. In the very same way, on the strength of their dreams, these ungodly people pollute their own bodies. Notice this. Reject authority and heap abuse on celestial beings. There's this whole weird thing in Jude that we can't align with where these false teachers are seemingly teaching that angels gave the law, the rules of God, and angels can't be trusted. And so... You don't have to listen to the law anymore. We don't have any of that. If you know somebody that knows that, I'd love to have a conversation with them or thinks that. But that's not how we see it. But there is more and more and more a rejection of authority, whether it be the authority of tradition that I just talked about. I know they thought it forever, but who cares? Or, even more, the authority of the Bible outright, right? Because that's what it boils down to. I see Scripture. I just don't care what Scripture says. You see it in a couple ways. Let me just tell you how I see this happen with people that I know. At least one that I would call a false teacher. Um, They'll say like this, everybody's understanding it wrong, except for me. They'll say it like this, well that was written by those guys and they were sinners and you know and so how can we trust them they'll say it like this that was just the culture in which they lived in and so it doesn't apply to us today sometimes they say it like well they just don't have the knowledge that i have incredible arrogance um and and this is how it's taught to us right this is how false teachers do it today they don't say anything about angels but they tear at the authority of christianity especially scripture and sometimes they do it based on 
divine revelation. And we don't see it that way, but, but God's told me something that he hasn't told anybody else. I watched this movie on Netflix that's a really good movie. Um, uh, and, and I say that with you should know that we don't believe what, what this guy in the movie teaches. But it's about a, a preacher that was a preacher of a very large church in Tulsa, Oklahoma. Uh, and one day he's watching a sh- uh, TV and there's some starving children. And, and, he, and he says to God, how could you let these people go to hell? And, and God says to him, I'm not. Everybody's going to heaven. God says to him, everybody's going to heaven. And so he gets up on stage and he starts preaching what we call universalism. Everybody's going to heaven. It doesn't matter if you're a Christian or not. You get to go to heaven. And the movie's good because it doesn't paint those who are in our conservative theological box as bad guys. It just shows them saying, I have to take a stand. They paint him as the best guy, but the Christians as good guys too. But this is, this is dangerous, Right? <laughs> Well, I know what the Bible says, but God told me. If I ever get up on this stage and say anything close to those words, then, then go to a different church. Well, it appears that the Bible says, but God has revealed to me. God's revealed. It's hard to argue with it, right? Like, what do you say? Well, that probably was Satan. Like, that seems mean. <laughs> I mean, you know, like, what do we, I don't even know what that looks like. And, and so... Be careful when the whole Bible and all of Christian history seems to suggest one thing, but somebody comes along and says, well, God's told me. Jude 1.12, these people are blemishes at your love feast, eating with you without the slightest qualm. Shepherds who feed only themselves. They're financially gaining by not teaching anything of any importance it's a play on words they're feeding themselves they're getting people's money by not feeding anybody anything that matters a lot of famous pastors in our country today would just say it like that i would say the majority of pastors that you could name off the top of your head unless you've grown up in christian circles and you just have all these guys that you like but if you just think of famous guys so many of them have become famous by not saying anything important at all. They feed themselves quite well. Very nice homes, fame, popularity, huge followings. They feed themselves by not feeding you anything that's important. It's an epidemic. You want to get yourself on TV, just don't say anything important. Say the exact same stuff that's in the self-help books. And we need to be leery of that because it's one of the ways that false teachers are, are moving into our culture. These people are grumblers, this is verse 16, and fault finders, they follow their own evil desires, they boast about themselves and flatter others for their own advantage. Uh, Another famous pastor, and I don't call, I don't like to call pastors by names, and so I'm not going to, but uh, 
this is hard to say without giving it away. Uh, their dad was the pastor of their church before, and a professor of mine told me that he grew up in the area of this church, and, and, and when he was in seminary in this area, there was a billboard that said the name of the church and, and then the pastor's name. And now when the son has taken over, it says the name of the person and, and then smaller case, lower on the other side, the name of the church. There's something wrong with that, right? And where's Jesus in all of it? They boast about themselves. Too many of our churches today, and not all churches with famous pastors are false teaching churches. Let me be really clear about that. But so many of them that are, it's all about that singular person. They boast about themselves. It's them. They write the book and say, here's how you do it because here's how I did it. These are things we deal with, right? I mean, doesn't it feel like our modern day American church culture? I mean, we've seen the removal of morality under the guise of grace. We've seen the rejection of authority, especially scripture. We've seen of th- these people who flatter others and make them feel good about themselves, never saying you're a sinner, only saying you're great and God loves you and just wants you to be happy, all so that they can feed themselves. And Jude looks at us and says, you must contend for the faith. Verses 20 through 23 tell us how. And I'm not really going to preach on these. I'm just going to kind of pause as I go through them. And then I'm going to leave it for you. This is different. I know this is different, kind of open-ended. But I'm going to leave it for you to go home and read these verses and then say, how do I apply this? How do I apply this? But let me just be clear before I read them. It's not this. It's not yelling. It's not being mean. It's not being angry. It's not shouting with a louder megaphone, you know. It's uh, not going outside on the strip in Las Vegas and saying all those people that do it in a different way than our church is doing it, are doing it wrong. You see some of this, right? I mean, I hate when somebody walks up to me randomly and says, do you know if you're going to heaven? Because I know that I'm going to say, and this has happened, I, Bryn's still fired up about an interaction she had once where it's like, well, yes, I think I'm going to heaven because I'm a Christian. And then the conversation inevitably is going to go like this, but are you the right kind of Christian? And, and it's, this is not that. Listen to these verses, right? Because they're so important. But you, dear friends, this is how you contend for the faith, but you, dear friends, by building yourselves up in your most holy faith, Are we doing that? Are you really working to build up your own faith? Because one of the reasons that false teachers have gained such ground in our culture is that we have had such shallow faith, such weak faith. And Jude says, if you want to contend for the faith, then build up your faith. And praying in the Holy Spirit, are you praying for real? Are you really spending time waiting for God to move as you speak to Him? Praying in the Holy Spirit, Keep yourself in God's love as you wait for the mercy of our Lord Jesus. Are you considering the incredible, amazing love of God? Are you thinking about how someday that means you get to go to heaven and experience the mercy of God even more? The strongest Christians I know are the Christians who look forward to heaven the most. They contend for the faith. The mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ to bring you to eternal life. Notice this. Be merciful to those who doubt. Didn't see that coming, did you? Be merciful to those who doubt. 
Save others by snatching them from the fire. And to others show mercy mixed with fear. This isn't hating people who disagree with us. This is working hard to grab those who are giving in to the false teachers that our world has and saying, I can help you get back to truth. And then this, hating even the clothing stained by corrupted flesh. We like false teachers because they kind of tell us we can do what we want. They can kind of let us get close to immorality without really being bothered. But Jude says, hate, hate the immorality. I'm going to read it in fullness one time. Then I'm going to pray that you'll contend for the faith. And then I just ask that you'll go home and you'll read this and you'll think about it. And if you're not a Christian, you'll consider the resurrection. Let me read it one more time. Jude 20 through 23. But you, dear friends, by building yourselves up in your most holy faith, And praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourself in God's love as you wait for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ to bring you to eternal life. Be merciful to those who doubt. Save others by snatching them from the fire. To others show mercy mixed with fear, hating even the clothing stained by corrupted flesh. Lord Jesus, we live in a difficult time and it appears as I read your word and as I do study Christian history that that Christians have always lived in a difficult time. Perhaps our country was saved from some of it for a little bit because we had such a high percentage of Christians, but God, it's always been difficult because there's always been people who want to build themselves up by tearing down truths of the faith because God, it's always easier to gain a following by telling people what they want to hear instead of telling people what they need to hear, which you have commanded And so I pray, God, for us now and for those who will come after us that we would contend for your faith, that we would carry on the baton of your faith to the absolute best of our ability, God. I pray, God, that we would see a revival in our country where where Christians return to the the truths of your word and God even even on on top of that, not more than that, but on top of that, God, we would return to, to holding tightly to the Christian morality that has existed, God, since you, since you started to tell people how they ought to live. Lord, I pray that we who are striving to contend for the faith would build ourselves up in your faith, that we would pray in your spirit, that God, we would remember your love and we would look forward to the ultimate fulfillment of your mercy. And I pray, God, that we would save others from these false teachers who are only feeding themselves. Lord, this is not, God, I would rather have preached a a sermon talking about all the good things of the faith, but I think you had this for us this morning. And I pray that we would heed the words and we would apply them in the best way possible. I ask these things in your holy name. Jesus, amen.